Welcome to Encounter. We want nothing more than to help you find and follow Jesus. If you're a college student in Central Illinois, head to isuencounter.org or download our student app to learn about all that's happening here. Thanks for listening. Amen. Man, I tell you, there's nothing quite as amazing sounding as a couple hundred college students praising Jesus. So, this job is awesome. Um, If you haven't seen me for a little while, uh, and you do know me, uh, well, I'm back. I've been sick on and off, essentially, for two weeks, uh, which feels like an eternity in college ministry. Um, I was off almost the whole week before winter retreat, had winter retreat, and then off for like half the week last week. So I'm finally back in caping with you guys. It's good to be here. Um, Thanks. (laughs) If you've seen me around but you don't know me, uh, my name is Alex, Alex Musselman. Um, This is a rowdy crowd tonight. I love it. I love it. Um, I'm a second-year intern. Uh, I've been married for eight months now. I had to... I, I had to ask her today how long we've been married, so it's not been long enough for me to need to ask that question yet, but that's where we're at. Um, I could go a lot deeper. Uh, I could share a lot more. Uh, if, you, if you want to know more about my story, who I am, uh, beyond those details, I'd love to share them, uh, but we got some stuff to get to tonight. Before we dive into the text, though, I want to give you some idea of the setting for where we'll be. It's obviously Middle East, Uh, we're in the life of Jesus, and he's sharing a parable. This parable takes place on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now this road was extremely dangerous. Bandits were all over, Um, it's in the middle of a mountainous desert, Um, and it was, the environment was very dangerous, it would look a lot like this. Um, It's about an 18-mile stretch of road, uh, over half a mile of elevation difference. And this is actually a picture from this road. So a lot of it looks like this. Some of it actually is this. It would be hot and dry. There'd be cliffs everywhere. And the road itself would be narrow, so narrow, that at some points, a passerby if somebody were laying on the ground, would have to literally step over them in order to continue on their journey. That'll be relevant in a minute. These things are important for us to know because these are things that the people that Jesus was telling the story to would also know. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read from the Word. God, thank you for bringing us here tonight. Um, God, I ask that you would help me get out of the way of this text, out of the way of your Holy Spirit, and that you would speak to us in here. Um, It's you we're here to listen to, so speak. Amen. So if you have a Bible or a phone, feel free to open up to Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37. And here we go. Then an expert on the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Then Jesus replies, What is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. 
You've answered correctly, Jesus told him. Do this and you will live. But, wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, he also passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal. The word for animal there just means ox. Brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Asks Jesus. The one who showed mercy to him, the lawyer replies. Then Jesus told him, Go and do the same. The first thing I want to draw our attention to is the two commands that Jesus gives the lawyer in this. He gives one at the beginning and one at the end of this text. The first one is, do this and you shall live. That's in verse 28. Do this and you shall live. Well, do what? If, I, if this is the thing that gets me eternal life, I want to know what that is. Well, in verse 27... He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. We're going to go into this a little bit. If you're hungry for more about that topic, that was our theme like the entirety of last year. So if you can go and find us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, I don't know, I only use Spotify. Um, any of the sermons from last year, uh, especially the first semester, we'll dive deeper into this than we will tonight. But I want to warn you guys to be careful not to fall into the temptation of the culture here. This is not saying love your neighbor as you love yourself. Godly love, agape love, the love of Jesus, is by definition selfless, not for yourself. It's not loving yourself because it doesn't, <laughs> you, can't, you can't selflessly love yourself. Um, it's just a contradictory statement. Um, instead, what is being said here is love your neighbor in place of yourself. Love your neighbor as though you depend on it. And this is part of what grants us eternal life. Another question, though, that I have for us, and this isn't where the sermon is going in the grand scheme of things, but I, I, this question is important for us to ponder. I don't think it's talked about quite enough. I think it's easy for us to think about how you love God with all your heart and your soul and your strength, but what does it look like for you to love God with all of your mind? What does that look like? Not just in a conceptual, oh, I'll pray more, I'll read more. What does that look like for you specifically in your day-to-day -day life to love God with all your mind? For me, it is, yes, reading the Bible, praying, 
reading with other people. And I know the Bible is what we focus on here, but other authors also write good things. Um, to list a few, C.S. Lewis, Tim Keller, and Brennan Manning. Um, those are, are good authors to be reading. C.S. Lewis, Tim Keller, and Brennan Manning. I think I, I heard someone say this. Um, in fact, I have it written down. Charles Spurgeon said, A well-marked Bible is the sign of a well-fed soul. I think I would add to that. I think he's absolutely right. Uh, but I think a well-read soul is also a well-fed soul. The Bible has to be a part of that, but other books add on. There are other ways to love God with your mind, but reading and praying is a good place to start. And we should get back into the rest of the sermon. So the lawyer asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? It's not a bad question. It's a very good question. Um, but we shouldn't hesitate and stay on this question for a long time. We need to ask ourselves this question and then take the next step forward. So what does this mean? What is the answer to this question? Who is my neighbor? Well, the Greek for the word neighbor is plesion. It means neighbor or near. In other words, one who is near. Um, so the answer to the question, who is my neighbor, is very straightforward. Um, it's just who is near you, the people next to you. You could look left and right and, and front and back right now. Those peepers are the peepers, ha, people. Those people are currently your neighbor. While you're out grabbing a cup of coffee, the person who makes that coffee, the person you interact with at the counter, those are your neighbors. Um, you know, it's people like roommates, family members, teammates, small group uh, members, and so on. Um, so think of a few. If you think of a few names right now, write them down. Um, if you don't, that's okay. There'll be t some time later. But this list that we come up with is not exhaustive. The environment that we're in is constantly changing. And so who is your neighbor in any given moment is also changing. What is the second commandment that Jesus gives us in this? Go and do the same. Again, do what? Well, the text tells us to be like the man who showed the man mercy, to be like the good Samaritan from this story. Did you notice that in the, the lawyer's answer to Jesus on Jesus' question of who was the neighbor in this story, the Jewish man, the, uh, the expert in the law, wouldn't say the word Samaritan in describing him in a good way, that he had done good things. Um, when Jesus asks who's the neighbor in this story, he just says the one who showed him mercy. It's like, okay, we know who you're talking about. <laughs> it's the Samaritan. Why won't you just say this? Well, this is indicative of the racism that Samaritans would experience at the time. I just, I want to take this lawyer, like, by the shoulders and, like, shake him silly and, and, and like, just put him in a seat and be like, dude, what, is this really that hard to tell somebody in the group that you hate that they're capable of doing a good thing, one good deed? How can you hate somebody so much? 
But as I found myself writing that question, I also found myself asking myself that question. Who am I, who are you, discounting? Who do we give ourselves permission to hate or discriminate against? Um, for me, and uh, I, I love my dad. I love my dad, but for me, it's always been my dad. Um, I've never given him a fair chance, um, at least hopefully until recently. <laughs> things, things have changed since becoming a Christ follower, um, and I'm very thankful for that. But I always blamed my dad for depression that I had. Um, I blamed my dad for the marriage falling apart. I blamed my dad for not teaching me about faith, but he didn't even have his own. What kind of standard is that for me to hold him to? Um, this part is for if my dad listens to the, this podcast in the future. Um, dad, I love you. Um, know that I've forgiven you. It's not your fault. Um, those things weren't true. None of those things were true. And even if they were in, in a little bit, um, they're not just on you. It's a family um, but now I get to count it my joy as a Christ follower to forgive him. Um, I get to count my own sins in these situations, and we all get to repent and grow towards the Lord together. Um, so let's, let's get back to the lawyers uh, for a second and the laws. Have you heard of the phrase, being a good Samaritan, um, or good Samaritan laws? They are extremely prevalent terms in culture, at least they used to be. Um, this idea of being a good Samaritan is one that's so prevalent in culture that when I talked to my brother this weekend about what I was preaching today, that he was like, did you mean Samarian? It's like, no, the, the parable of the good Samaritan. He thought I was misspeaking because it's, it's such an ingrained part of our language. But the morals in this parable have become so ingrained in culture that every state and nearly every country have what's called a Good Samaritan law. What does this do? Well, before I can tell you, for legal reasons, I'm not a lawyer and this isn't legal advice. So quote me on that part, not the rest of it. Um, Essentially, these laws, in order to promote giving aid to those in need, uh, they aim to give legal protection to those who act in accordance with their abilities to aid in emergency situations in which someone around them is in either severe or mortal danger uh, so that the people helping cannot be held liable for accidental or minor damages or harm while acting in good faith. I know that's a lot of words. You don't need to write that down. Um, it just protects somebody that's trying to help in case they accidentally do something wrong. Does this sound familiar? Um, every, country, or every state and nearly every country have what's called a Good Samaritan Law, and it's directly in accordance with what's being taught by Jesus 2,000 years ago. Other countries specifically that don't have Good Samaritan laws, I couldn't actually find a straight answer. <laughs> the internet was pretty divided on this. Uh, according to mylawquestions.com, Lebanon is the only country without a Good Samaritan law. 
But according to other websites, including Wikipedia, which we know how reliable that is, um, only Pakistan, South Africa, New Zealand, and Singapore are the, the countries without Good Samaritan laws. I don't know who to trust on that, but what I can tell you is that the vast majority of countries do have one. Um, this is that permeated into culture. I want to share a little bit about a specific country uh, and their Good Samaritan laws and the way that they came to be. Uh, I'm going to just tell a paraphrase of this story. Um, this is from 2011 um, when a two-year-old girl uh, walked out from where she was staying with her parents in the middle of a storm and walked out into the middle of a street uh, in a busy market and uh, was ran over by not one but two cars over the span of seven minutes uh, with 18 onlookers um, all on video. And it was less than a year after that that China put into effect their first Good Samaritan law. It took until that happened in 20, and then a year later for them to actually get this passed. Um, eventually, in 2017, they added to these laws and created what's called the duty to rescue laws. They don't call it that, but that's the overarching term for it. Um, and these fundamentally will actually punish people who don't help in those times. They've gone so far into the other end because they were afraid of where they were. I know none of us are watching children die on the street. This doesn't exactly parallel to the reality that we experience here. At least I, I sincerely hope not. Um, but I think we are watching people that we care about die spiritually. Um, does your heart break for them like Jesus' heart does? If it does, then help them. What are you waiting for? By that, I don't mean make them your project, try to save them. What I do mean is invest in them, love them, be present. And if something like this happens to them, you're there to help. And this is for all of the people who are your neighbors, not just the ones you call your best friends. Finland uh, has what they call an, a general duty to act law. Um, they have this code uh, that describes their neglect of rescue, which says a person who knows that another is in mortal danger or serious danger to his or her health and does not give assistance that in view of his or her options and the nature of the situation can reasonably be expected, they shall be sentenced for neglect of rescue to a fine or to imprisonment of at most six months. Um, I don't know about, nor do I really care about the politics of is China legislating too much? Are we not legislating enough? Which is better, Good Samaritan law, duty to act law? But what I can tell you is that the Christian life is more like having a duty to act on our heart than just falling back on legal protection. Um, we need to act in accordance with the call from Christ to love our neighbors and not just uh, the protection that he gives us if we mess up. 
It's important for us to fall back on that when we do mess up. Don't be mistaken. Um, But that's not the thing that motivates us. What motivates us is that we see a need and we meet it. Now, this is not just about emergency situations. This is for your everyday situations with your everyday people. Like we said, neighbors are all around you all the time. So what do we do with this? How do we follow Jesus in what he said to the lawyer to do this and live and to do this the same way? Well, we're in the state farm town, so we're going to talk about how to be a good neighbor. (laughs) I almost didn't put the word good up there, but I couldn't avoid it. First thing I want to make note of here is that you need to be interruptible. In Mark 5, there are so many interruptions in the ministry of Jesus that even the interruptions are interrupted, okay? You need to make room. You need to be available. You need to be present in the spaces that you're in. The Samaritan was interruptible. If he was not, he would have looked just like the priest or just like the Levite, stepping on to the other side of the road to avoid getting as close as possible uh, to this person in need. The next thing you need is compassion and mercy. Compassion and mercy. This is about the condition of your heart. Are you grieved by what grieves Jesus? Are you joyous over what gives joy to Jesus? Are you forgiving like Jesus is? That's a tough one. Compassion and having a merciful heart seem often to be a prerequisite for action. Um, This story of the Samaritan is an example of that. Early on, it before he acts, it says, and he had compassion for him. But Jesus also, before he fed the 5,000 in Matthew 14, um, verses 14 through 18 say this, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a a large crowd and had compassion on them and healed their sick. When evening came, the disciples approached him and said, this place is deserted and it is already late. Send the crowds away so that they can go into the villages and buy food for themselves. They don't need to go away, Jesus told them. You give them something to eat. But we only have five loaves and two fish here, they said to him. So Jesus replied, bring them here to me. He had compassion, and then he did miracles. He helped people. Jesus' heart was always prepared for ministry work. He had no lack of compassion and mercy, but I think we often find ourselves with that. I think this rings true for Jesus because it's always true for him, and so it rings true for us, but often before you will actually follow through on the work that's set before you, your soul must be primed for it. You must have compassion and mercy. The next thing is to give generously. This is not partially, not haphazardly, not withholding anything. On one occasion in Matthew 19, Jesus even told a rich man that he had to sell everything and give the money from selling those things away. 
Uh, in this story, the Good Samaritan uses a whole bunch of his own things that I'm sure he worked very hard for. Oil was very expensive back in the day. Um, we're told that he uses his own olive oil, his own wine, bandages, transportation, and money to help the injured man. He was also, interestingly, readily prepared with all of these things in the middle of an 18-mile trek. The things required of us today look a little bit different than oil and bandages. Um, it might be your phone, it might be your wallet, it might be your keys. Uh, but remember, we're talking about more than emergencies. You might need to give generously of your time or of your knowledge, of your listening skills, of your ability to make a mean mac and cheese and dino nuggets, or to pay for somebody's coffee. When was the last time you had somebody over for dinner or took an acquaintance out to coffee on you? Also, the Samaritan gave the innkeeper two denarii, and promised him more if necessary. To put that into perspective, a single denarii is a day's wage. In our time, minimum wage is 14 or 15 bucks, so that means post-tax we're bringing home, if we're working full-time at minimum wage, 100 bucks a day, 200 bucks in two days. Uh, for those of you who are making more an hour, congrats. <laughs> um, but I know many of us aren't working full-time, so forget the numbers, just hear the heart in this. Are you stewarding the resources and the money that you have well in such a way that you could give generously the way that the Samaritan did? Now, you don't have to give away 10% of your paycheck to every person you find on the street, um, but you do have to be available and willing to give away what's yours because in the grand scheme of things, it's all God's anyways. So if you give that up to God and you give that to the people around you, he can do amazing things. The next thing is to be selfless and others focused. John fifteen thirteen says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay his life down for his friends. I think the Good Samaritan is a good picture of this. It's only a couple days that we get a view into the Samaritan's life, but he was clearly others-focused. He went over to him and bandaged the person's wounds, and we are told that he took him to the inn and took care of him. And it's only the next day that he gives the innkeeper money and promises more when he comes back. This means that on an 18-mile trek, some stranger met another person who was wounded on, a ground, on the ground, took him the rest of who knows how many miles to get to this inn, and took care of him the entire night, actively bandaging him, cleaning his wounds, and taking care of him. He saw the need, so he met the need. And it's that simple when you're others-focused. I know we're in the season of practicing prayer, um, but I think it's so cool that the Samaritan didn't need to stop and pray about it first. He'd probably done that three days ago, praying for an opportunity for God to move. 
He didn't pray that someone would come along and help beside him. He came along the side the man and helped himself. The last thing is to be consistent. I couldn't help when reading through this story and have this question permeate through my mind constantly. Why do you think the innkeeper trusted the Samaritan? We don't know the nationality of the innkeeper. Race plays no part here. Why do you think the innkeeper trusted the Samaritan? Well, to be upfront about it, we aren't told. But if I were to go to a hotel in this town, pay for a couple nights stay, or if you're adjusting for inflation, maybe a a two week stay, um, and promise the hotel owner more money later if you had to spend more money to take care of this guy, there's no way that's flying. (laughs) I'd have to give them way more money than I'm actually capable of giving them for them to do me that favor. I would have to know the owner personally. I'd have to have a well-established relationship with them, and I would have to have consistent character with this person, probably for a while. The Good Samaritan's ability to help like he did would either be greatly helped or greatly hindered by his character, as is yours, your ability to help, and as is mine. If I'm characterized by the fruit of the Holy Spirit, that's what we're talking about here. Love, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, goodness, joy, peace, patience, self-control. Those are the things that we're talking about when we're talking about being consistent. Are you actively characterized by those things? Because if you are, then you are in a position to be a good neighbor. In doing this, you cannot discriminate. (laughs) You can't. Uh, Jesus doesn't leave room for it. And I know, I know we all experience hardship. In some way or another, somewhere along our path, we've been mentally, emotionally, verbally, physically assaulted, abused. Um, I think the Samaritan people were too. Um, And Jesus puts his finger on that on purpose, and he presses into it. Do you remember earlier when we talked about how the lawyer refused to say the name Uh, to say that the Samaritan did anything good? Well, let's talk about why. Hundreds of years before Jesus, the kingdom of Israel was in two, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had been given back to the Samaritans by the people that had conquered them, and the southern kingdom was still under rule from a conqueror. About 70 years after the Samaritan were, Samaritans were given this land back, the Jewish people were finally given the ability to go back and re-inhabit the land of the southern kingdom. However, the Samaritans greatly opposed this and did everything in their power to hinder this development as much as possible. So in a way, in that short time when those things were happening and immediately after, it's possible that the distaste for the Samaritans weren't completely unjustified. 
Like they, they didn't want their people to be in the land that they were pushed out from, that they were ravaged away from. To be a follower of Christ, you cannot discriminate in who you love. We aren't to excuse people's wrong behavior or even racist behavior, but we can forgive it. In trying to figure out how to best share this story with you, um, I came across two things that will certainly communicate this idea better than I can. Uh, First is scripture uh, and then a story. I don't believe the scripture is up here. It's not. Um, So just listen to me as I read this. This is from Ephesians 4, verses 29 through 32. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need, so that it gives grace to those who hear. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander, be removed from you, along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. There's some pretty condemning words for hate there. Um, Let all bitterness and anger and wrath be removed from you. Um, That obviously applies to the person holding uh, racist views just as much as it applies to us not forgiving people, both racist and non-racist. The other story is the story of Frederick Douglass. Um, This is from an article on history.com written by Aaron Blakemore. Um, Frederick Douglass was a slave in the early 1800s. He was a Christian, um, though his slave owners did not want him to be, nor did they want him to be able to read or speak. Um, His owners were cruel, um, abusive, doesn't even begin to cut it. Um, So listen as I share this excerpt from that article. Thomas, I'm going to stop there. Who's Thomas? I just talked about Frederick Douglass, not Thomas. Thomas Auld was one of uh, Frederick Douglass's masters. Um, you'll hear also about Hugh, Hugh Auld, which was Thomas's brother, um, another one of Frederick Douglass's uh, so-called masters. Okay, here we go again. Thomas was a cruel master, starving and beating his enslaved workers and breaking up their attempts to worship, read, and write. He leased Douglas out to other masters who attempted to break his independent spirit with physical and emotional abuse. Eventually, Douglas returned to Hugh in Baltimore and fell in love and started a family. This increased his hatred of slavery, and in 1838, at the age of 20, armed with fake papers and a sailor suit disguise and a hope for the future, he escaped to the free north with the help of Anna Murray, the free black woman from Baltimore, with whom he had fallen in love. They ended up in Rochester, New York. As a free man, Douglas could not forget the people he'd left behind in Maryland or the monsters who had enslaved him. 
He became involved in the abolitionist cause, started publishing his own abolitionist newspaper, The North Star, and associated with notable abolitionists like William Lloyd Garrison in his fright against slavery. His first-hand descriptions of the cruelty of slavery were a potent weapon in the struggle against this bondage, and Douglas became a renowned speaker, crisscrossing the North to speak to abolitionist groups and gatherings about his life as an enslaved person. In 1845, Douglas increased his renown with the publication of The Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an autobiography that painted an incredibly grim picture of his life in slavery. In the book, Douglas named his former owners who had been attempting to capture him using bounty hunters who specialized in tracking down people who escaped enslavement. To avoid capture, Douglas fled to Great Britain but quickly returned to the United States to continue his crusade against slavery after a group of supporters paid for his freedom. Later, in 1848, Douglas again turned a spotlight on his former owner. Lean in and listen to this. He wrote an emotional open letter to Thomas Auld, lambasting him for his participation in a cruel system. I intend to make use of you as a weapon with which to assail the system of slavery, wrote Douglas. Yet he ended the letter on a surprisingly tender note. I entertain no malice towards you personally, Douglas wrote. There is no roof under which you would be more safe than mine. And there is nothing in my house which you might need for your comfort, which I would not readily grant. I am your fellow man, but not your fellow slave." Man, does that preach it better than I could. Um, Christ compels us to love indiscriminately, freely, and sacrificially everyone around us. I'll say that again. Christ compels us to love indiscriminately, freely, and sacrificially everyone around us. Douglas didn't hold back. He's not letting people off the hook he is being a good Samaritan kind of neighbor. So let's start doing that together. There's another thing I want to add to our list from earlier in the spirit of the practice we have this month. Let's pray. Pray. How do we begin to love a neighbor best? Pray, pray, pray. <laughs> this is both loving God and loving people with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. You can pray for availability and opportunity, pray for compassion, pray for resources to give, pray to have your heart concerned with others and not with yourself, pray for the fruit of the Spirit to be what others know you by. All of these are good prayers. And you should be praying for your neighbors. As you meet them in real time and ahead of time, saying, God, I don't know who I'm going to see tomorrow, but would you help me love them? Would you help me to be available, interruptible, compassionate with mercy, to give them generously whatever it is that I have to give, to be selfless, focused on them, and if our relationship goes farther, to be consistent and known by your fruit. We're going to get into worship here um, and as an opportunity for response, 
Uh, we've got some papers up here and a, a whole bunch of markers. Um, we've got three songs. So feel free to come up and write the name of some of the neighbors that you thought about. Either the people next to you now, the people next to you in class tomorrow, your brother, your sister, your second cousin you don't see till next month. Whoever those names are, write them down and either hear laying a hand on that name, pray for them, or back at your seat, go ahead and pray for them too. I'm going to pray and then we're going to worship. Jesus, thank you for speaking to us. God, I ask that any words that I said that were not uh, of you, that you would cross out, that you would make people forget, and that you would make people latch on to the things that are of you. God, would you help us to love you and to love our neighbor? Would you lead us towards being sacrificial, freely giving of ourselves and our resources? Um, And would you lead us into a space now where we can notice the people around us in our day-to-day and be thankful for them and for you? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. listening. Find out more about Encounter and ways to get involved at isuencounter.org.